Life on Jesus, a devotional study by Melva Perkis. Chapter 2 Faith and Fear. On the fortieth day after the birth of Jesus, Mary, now growing stronger, went with Joseph to Jerusalem and there in the temple presented herself to the priest for purification making the humbler offering allowed for those who could not afford a yearling lamb. Following the intercession of the priest for her purification, Mary offered the babe Jesus to the Lord and redeemed him from temple service by the payment of five shekels. It was in this solemn and beautiful setting that Jesus was recognised and brought an ecstasy of joy to the hearts and lips of two who were waiting for redemption in Israel. It is a picture of rewarded devotion, which we find repeated in scriptural records of the experiences of the servants of God. Years of barrenness are forgotten in the wonder of consummation. Simeon was an upright and godly man who studied the Lord and the prophets. He realized the significance of the days in which he lived and had been rewarded by the knowledge given to him through the Holy Spirit that before his eyes closed in the sleep of death, he would see the Messiah. With what trembling anticipation he would make his way through the crowded streets toward the temple, impelled by the urge of the Spirit of God. There would be no doubt in his mind that God's promise was about to be fulfilled. With a deep exaltation of spirit, he lifted the helpless babe to his breast, and holding the Lord of life against his heart, he uttered memorable words. Simeon was content now to pass quietly from the scene. For mine eyes have seen thy salvation, which thou hast prepared before the face of all people, a light to lighten the Gentiles, and the glory of thy people Israel. Even Mary, who had been so well prepared for the destiny of her son by revelation and constant prayer, was filled with amazement. Simeon turned his eyes reluctantly from the child in his arms and blessed Mary and Joseph. His prophecy ended on a note of foreboding. Here were the first faint notes of a warning which thirty years later was to be uttered by the Saviour himself in stark reality. I came not to send peace, but a sword. Mary was not to escape the probings of that sword. Indeed, she had already felt its sharpness, and Simeon's eyes would grow dim with tears as he looked into her face. Yea, a sword shall pierce through thine own soul also. Simeon was not alone in his recognition of the Messiah. An aged prophetess, now over a hundred years old, had lived in prayer and fasting for the eighty-four years of her widowhood. 
It was no coincidence that she should witness the unforgettable scene and hear the announcement from the lips of Simeon. Her recognition was instantaneous. It made no demands on a faith as devoted as hers. It found expression in a prayer of deep gratitude, and then a desire to acquaint all those who looked for redemption in Jerusalem. We learn with a thrill of joy of that little band of waiting saints. However dark the national picture, we can always find a faithful remnant who fear the Lord and wait for the tokens of his hand. We read of them as the old dispensation closes amid the darkness and sorrow in which the just retribution of God had left them. Then they that feared the Lord spake often one to another, and the Lord hearkened and heard it, and a book of remembrance was written before him for them that feared the Lord, and that thought upon his name. And they shall be mine, saith the Lord of hosts, in that day when I make up my jewels. Four hundred years passed, years of conflict, heroism and intrigue, when the light of divine revelation shines once more on the Jewish scene. We find the remnant still there, Mary and Joseph, Zacharias and Elizabeth, Simeon and Anna, and others whose names are recorded in the Book of Life. In these darkening Gentile days, we can find strength and comfort in this evidence. It also conveys a subtle warning on the distinction between watching and waiting. All Israel was watching for the coming of the promised Messiah, but only a remnant was waiting for him. It is not difficult to watch the signs of the times, but only a life of devotion, a quiet submission of heart, a complete desire to sacrifice worldly ambitions and privileges, will prepare us for that true spirit of waiting, where watching is only the visible sign of the intense expectancy of the whole being. With the birth of Jesus, many ancient prophecies began to glow with life. He was probably over twelve months old when the wise Gentile philosophers sought him from distant eastern lands, acknowledged his kingship, and laid treasures at his feet. We know nothing of the origin of their long journey or the circumstances which brought them together. It is possible that the influence and message of Daniel in Babylon had not been lost with the passing years, and the thoughtful mystics of the East were waiting for the star that should come out of Jacob. It may be that these men were shown the significance of the sudden appearance of a celestial orb by divine revelation. But we do know that they had an experience which sent each, probably from widely separated points, upon his hard and perilous road to Jerusalem. It seems from the short narrative which Matthew gives that after the appearance of the star in the east, with its message which set the caravans in motion towards the king of the Jews in Jerusalem, 
it disappeared. And their journey westwards was a journey of faith. As they emerged from Herod's palace, the star shone forth over Bethlehem, a few miles to the south. When they saw it again, probably after a lapse of many weeks, Matthew records, they rejoiced with exceeding joy. There is here a footnote that is of interest. It reads, There is a strong indication that the wise men had not seen the star between the time they had left their distant countries and the moment they emerged from Herod's presence. See Matthew 2 verse 2, but particularly verse 9. To continue. Little did these travellers suspect the evil they had roused in the dark soul of the Idumean king who ruled the nation. Herod was one of those sinister characters who expose all that is worst in the human heart. By craft he had obtained a dispensation from Rome to rule Israel. His anxiety to retain that rule had become an obsession which was only satisfied by the blood of every rival. Even his wife and sons were sacrificed to his lust and jealousy. Old age found him a victim of his own vice. Living in the luxury of his new palace, this descendant of the hated Esau surrounded himself with spies and lived in perpetual fear of retribution from an outraged people, starting at every shadow and imagining enmity in every political move. The arrival of so distinguished a cavalcade at the gates would occasion no little stir, even in so populous and cosmopolitan a city as Jerusalem, and Herod's spies would acquaint the king of their coming. If, having heard of their mission, these spies were reckless enough to give the king any indication of it, they would have seen his face distorted with anger and fear. The royal palace was the obvious destination of these illustrious visitors, they would have little idea of the sensitive atmosphere of the court created by Herod's fearful obsession, and they could not have conceived the terrible effect of their bold inquiry, Where is he that is born, King of the Jews? Years of deceit and hypocrisy enabled Herod to conceal the passion in his heart, and under the guise of would-be worshipper he called the chief priests and scribes and asked them where the Messiah should be born. This was no problem to those who knew their scripture. And thou, Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, art not the least among the princes of Judah, for out of thee shall come a governor that shall rule my people Israel. With a gleam of triumph, Herod would feel this new menace to his throne was within reach of his powerful arm, and exacting from the wise men a promise to return with more precise details, he waited impatiently for the outcome of his cruel deception. Meanwhile, the Magi reached their objective and worshipped him who is destined to bring the Gentiles to his light and kings to the brightness of his rising. From early Christian times their gifts have been thought to hold a significance. 
the gold a symbol of the Messiah's kingship, the frankincense of his divine origin, and the myrrh of his death. Their gifts offered and their obeisance made, the wise men began their long trek eastwards over deserts and mountains to their distant homes. A divine intervention prevented their return to the impatient king in Jerusalem. Not to be diverted from his purpose, Herod sent his soldiers down to Bethlehem and slaughtered all the children in the town who were two years old or under. The busy noises of the little township were silenced, and in their place was a noise of bitter wailing as mothers watched in helpless grief the soldiery seek out every young child. Like the great despot who six centuries before had ruled in Babylon, Herod had failed to learn that however powerful a man may be, whatever forces he can instantly command, he is a helpless weakling when, consciously or not, he strives against God or seeks to divert his purpose. When Herod's soldiers stormed into Bethlehem, Joseph and Mary, with their precious burden, were far to the southwest, beyond the reach of the king. They were fleeing to Egypt on the instructions of an angel who had appeared to Joseph in a dream. The journey was long and dangerous, and during the early stages they would probably sleep by day and travel by night, making for the coast at Gaza where they would leave the almost trackless desert with its perils and its loneliness and join the ancient trade route from Damascus. We have no direct indication of how long the sojourn in Egypt lasted. The little family would probably join the Jewish colony and Joseph would provide for the needs of Mary and her son by following his trade as a carpenter. But at last the call came, probably when Jesus was between two and three years old. Herod was dead. The life of Jesus was no longer in danger. Arise, said the angel to Joseph, and take the young child and his mother and go into the land of Israel. It would seem that Joseph and Mary intended to return to Bethlehem and forsake Nazareth altogether. It may have been that they felt that this would give Jesus an opportunity of living near Jerusalem and receiving his training for his great work among his people at the hands of the learned rabbis in the temple. It may have been that they felt it was necessary in fulfilment of God's prophetic message through Micah that they should sacrifice a natural desire to return to Galilee and make their home in Bethlehem. But as they neared the land of Israel and heard that Archelaus, Herod's son, had succeeded him, they questioned the wisdom of their decision. Doubt and hesitancy were removed by an angelic visitation which directed their steps northward to the familiar countryside of Galilee and their old village of Nazareth. A Life of Jesus, Chapter 3, 
Home Life in Nazareth Nazareth will always hold precious associations to those who have come to know and love Jesus. The memories may be saddened by the reflection that the darker tendencies of human nature prevailed in the treatment he received from those among whom he grew up. Yet by far the greater part of his earthly life was spent there. It was the place chosen by his father to be the scene of his preparation for the great work that lay ahead. And for thirty years he sanctified the little town with his presence, learning the law and the purpose of God, and growing to understand the ways of men. Nestling in the shelter of a ring of the southernmost hills of Lower Galilee, Nazareth was a beautiful little town. Its white buildings spread up the hillside interspersed with orange and fig groves. For many months of the year the rocky slopes glowed with the vivid hues of the multicoloured anemones and the clusters of white and mauve cyclamen growing under the lichen-covered rocks. Whilst the spring and early summer brought its harvest of narcissi, and the warm months saw the full beauty of the dark blue patches of cornflowers and light blue clusters of dwarf iris. Although Nazareth was a secluded town, the stream of life passed very near it. Little could be seen from the town itself, but climbing the hillside to the edge of the basin, a wonderful prospect stretched away in three directions. Perhaps the first eager gaze would be toward the west, where the wooded bluff of Carmel stretched out into the deep blue waters of the Mediterranean twenty miles away. To the south and southwest lay the vast plain of Esdralon, the scene of a score or more of decisive battles in the past, and yet to me the battleground of man's final rebellion against his Maker. Beyond the plain to the south rose the heights of Samaria, whilst eastwards were the hills of Galilee and the Jordan crossings. Northward the hills rolled away towards the Phoenician coast, broken by jagged rents where swiftly flowing rivers and mountain streams gushed and tumbled towards the sea. Away to the northeast, it would be possible on a clear day to discern the dominating peaks of Hermon wrapped in their almost unearthly mantle of eternal snow. This scene was animated by the movement of many travellers. The way of the sea, which brought merchants caravans from Damascus, skirted the Sea of Galilee and, crossing the great sweep of Esdralon below, turned south along the coastal plain of Sharon to Egypt. From the fords of Jordan in the east, the caravans of the Midianites could be seen winding down from the hills, while directly south, across the vast expanse of sand and scrub, crowded with pilgrims as the festival days drew near, lay the road through Samaria to Jerusalem. Struggling among the mountains to the north of Galilee was the road to Ptolemais, to the regions of Decapolis, echoing constantly with the steady tramp of Roman soldiers. 
Many would be the stories that the people of Nazareth would hear from the peasants in the countryside around, and sometimes from the lips of tired travellers who climbed the narrow paths to seek shelter and rest in the secluded town. They would hear of events in Egypt and in Syria. They would listen to stories of splendour and rumours of intrigue from the great heart of the Roman Empire itself. They would hear with fast-beating hearts the news of the intentions of Augustus in Palestine, of the possible successor to the throne in Jerusalem. They would exchange dark glances as they heard of still heavier taxation and betray mixed feelings over the possibility of direct control from Rome. The little village itself was full of life and colour, the well was seldom deserted. It provided a happy meeting place for the women who would linger there with the stone jars, resting beside them, exchanging the gossip of the place with candour. The prospect of a wedding would bring animated chatter and happy laughter, while sometimes their voices would be hushed and their faces saddened by the news of sickness or death. Even in the heat of the day, the steep, crooked streets would be full of noise and bustle. The laughter of happy children at play, the cries of the merchants from their shops hollowed out in the walls, the occasional plaintive call of a beggar, the bray of an ass, the raucous bleat of goats, all combined to make the animated scene which formed the background to life in this hilly Galilean retreat. It was in this beautiful and eventful setting that Jesus grew to maturity. Only one incident is recorded of him during those years. Natural as it seems to desire a greater knowledge of his childhood, we must recognise a divine wisdom in this concealment and appreciate the fitting summary of his early life given to us by Luke. And Jesus increased in wisdom and stature and in favour with God and man. Jesus grew to moral and intellectual maturity as naturally as he grew physically taller and stronger travelling the road we all travel, struggling against the temptations which are common to youth, attaining virtue by the direct assault of evil and the triumph of personal effort. He sought strength from his father and found favour by repeated endeavour and steady improvement. There is a possibility that in our reverence for Jesus, we overlook the implications of this gradual development and are deprived of the true comfort of the mediatorship of him who suffered being tempted, who was in all points tempted like as we are, yet without sin. The divine reticence in the Gospels leads our minds to the simple yet beautiful picture of a growing boy helping his mother in her homely tasks, often walking with her down the crowded and lively streets to make her daily purchases and fetch the water from the well, learning from her quiet example the beauty of godliness and the strength of faith. 
We see him as he grows older, making more frequent visits to the busy carpenter's shop, where the noise of the hammer and the saw proclaim Joseph's skilful service to the people around. As he grows older, he begins to use the tools himself and learns the satisfaction of creative work, until his interest and skill begin to lighten the burden of the father of a growing family. There are significant indications in his teaching that these days were days of struggle against poverty. The parables of Jesus are full of homely scenes, which may well have had their source in his own early experience. The patched garment, the widow's feverish search for a lost coin of little value, father and children sharing a bed, the one raised lamp which could illuminate the whole house. All these seem to reflect the struggling circumstances of his youth. The humble dwelling constantly echoed with the laughter of happy children. But there were times of childish cries too, and instinctively the younger ones would look to Jesus to settle their difficulties and calm the angry waters. As the months lengthened into years, a gradual change would have been discernible in Jesus. He grew in favour with God. That is ever a slow and beautiful process. Its beginning is always hidden in mystery. It may have been on the heights above Nazareth when the rising sun was turning the hills over the Jordan Valley to gold and Jesus was becoming aware of the creative power of God. It may have been in the breathless stillness of a star-filled night, when a man feels the strange loneliness of his insignificance. It may have been in the flickering light of the carpenter's shop when, the day's work done, Joseph was revealing to him some of the wonders of God's deliverance and care of his people. We do not know where that flame of consciousness was kindled. We do know it grew, and that Jesus encouraged it by so diligent a study of the law and the prophets, that when he was only twelve, the most learned rabbis in the land marvelled at his acquaintance with the scriptures. Joseph would recognise the responsibility of teaching his children the law of the Lord. It was a father's sacred trust in Israel, even after all those centuries of disobedience and travail. These words which I command thee this day shall be in thine heart, and thou shalt teach them diligently unto thy children and shall talk of them when thou sittest in thine house, and when thou walkest by the way, and when thou liest down, and when thou risest up. No child ever listened more carefully to the words of the law than Jesus. How long Joseph was able to continue his spiritual ministrations we do not know. His complete disappearance from the Gospel page suggests his early death, and the probability that, at an early age, the responsibilities of the godly carpenter were accepted by Jesus. 
When he was about six, the spiritual guidance of his home would be supplemented by the instruction of a scribe at the synagogue school at Nazareth. All the synagogues had these schools for teaching the young. But a child who did not graduate to the higher education of the house of Midrash, attached to the temple at Jerusalem, was not considered learned. And this was to be remembered against him in later years, when Jesus challenged the scribes upon their knowledge and their conduct. Amid the wonder and solitude of his father's creation, knowledge was transformed by that strange alchemy into wisdom and prayer turned to communion. There have been many examples of children with an outstanding ability to absorb facts. The development of Jesus went far beyond that. He meditated upon God's revelation, and often Mary would find his bed empty in those sacred days of preparation, when meditation moved towards communion, and with a growing sense of awe, Jesus began to suspect the unique significance of his life and ponder his relationship to God. Mary, too, would be conscious of the new sense of awareness in her son. There is no more penetrating discernment than a mother's love, and that discernment was increased a hundredfold by the things which she had hid in her heart. Watching her son returning down the hillside, the glow of the father's presence still reflected in the light of his eyes and in the assurance of his voice. Mary would feel again the thrill of Gabriel's approach and hear once more his vibrant words proclaiming her son, the long-awaited Messiah of Israel. This quiet but powerful development went on as the years passed, and the child grew and waxed strong in spirit, filled with wisdom, and the grace of God was upon him. In despised Galilee, far from the glittering opulence of the Roman court, far from the rabbinical schools of Jewish learning, Jesus grew up like a tender plant and as a root out of a dry ground, preparing himself and being prepared by his Father for his manifestation, first to Israel and then to all mankind.